Uh, Here we are, we're in Luke chapter 22, uh, an important section. Uh, As you know, we're moving communion to the end of service because in Luke chapter 22, all the events of this chapter are around this communion meal that Jesus is going to take with his disciples. It's the first communion where he instructs it. So I thought it would be more powerful for us to hear all the details of what was going on around Jesus and then to take communion after the fact so that we could really connect to it in hopes not just for a moment today, but that those things will stick with us over the upcoming months. So when we take our five to ten minutes on an average Sunday to take part in communion, uh, it doesn't just become rote behavior for us. Uh, We can really connect to something in the passage there, and it'll become more meaningful as we go forward. So that's where we are, but for the sake of time, we have 71 verses and communion ahead of us, so we better get going. Uh, How's the song go? Uh, We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, but we're going to do what they said can't be done. (laughs) Sorry. Verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to Jesus. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. So this is the scenario in which we find our first communion service. It's also the end of Jesus' ministry. We're coming into the end there. Remember, since chapter 9, he's been telling his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. When I get there, they're going to beat me up. They're going to crucify me, put me to death. They're going to bury me. But then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. It's been this kind of continual thing that he's been telling them just to remind them as they get closer to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. In addition to that, we have this constant conflict going on. We have the, the religious leaders starting in chapter 11 looking for ways to destroy Jesus, to silence him. And ultimately here we see in verse 2, they just want to put him to death. Anything that they can do to get rid of Jesus. Just as a quick side note, anytime your religious leader's plan involves putting somebody to death, it might be time to change churches. This is not normal behavior for religious leaders. This is abnormal and sinful. Now, from their perspective, they might be able to argue the case and say he's a false messiah, and so maybe that is the legitimate way to respond, but their idea of doing it away from the people under the cover of darkness without the knowledge of the government tells you that probably in their heart of hearts, they know what they're doing is wrong. They recognize what's really going on here is that there is a power struggle and they believe if the people follow Jesus, they will lose their position. They will lose their reputation. So that's the real struggle. On top of that, Jesus has been kind of in their face repeatedly explaining to them how they're not really representing God well. So it's just not a real comfortable situation for everybody involved. And so if you can take a situation that's that difficult and just throw Satan into the middle of it, it's not going to get better. That's what happens here. Now it says in verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas, one of the twelve. Now we, of course, know Judas as the one who betrays Jesus, but they didn't know him as that guy yet. The twelve were just thinking, Judas is just one of us. 
He's one of the 12. They've spent time ministering with Judas. They've slept in the same places. They've eaten the same food. They've been around the same healed people, sick people, demoniacs. They've all seen together the powerful things that Jesus did. And Judas was right there. And I assume as the disciples were sent out and doing ministry and given power by God to accomplish certain things, including healing people and casting out demons, that Judas was involved in that. I can't imagine that he somehow was able to sneak off and nobody noticed that. Is there one person here who didn't heal somebody? Who would that be? No, I think he was given the power of God for those moments to do the things that God wanted the apostles to do. But I also think he has another side, a hidden side. The side that doesn't quite believe all that's going on there with Jesus. He has, like most people, like all people except Jesus, he also has a sin nature. And he has this battle that's always going on inside him, just like you have a battle always going on inside you between the flesh and the spirit. And with your spirit, you cry out to God, but your flesh desires sinful things. This is something we know about Judas personally. He was the treasurer of the disciples' money. And we get these kind of two things from other gospels. One was at Bethany when the woman anointed Jesus for burial with this very expensive perfume. Judas is upset about this and he says, oh my goodness, that money could have been given to the poor. It could have, but she chose to worship Jesus with it. But at the heart of the issue wasn't that the money could have been given to the poor. At the heart of the issue, we're told in another gospel, is that Judas was skimming a little bit off the top. And maybe he's saying, it could have been given to the poor, and I'm pretty poor. (laughs) You see, Judas had this conflict within himself, and Satan is going to take advantage of that conflict and enter into Judas. Now, was Judas a believer at this point? I think with his limited knowledge, he believed what he believed about Jesus. He believed at some level that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Messiah, because he followed him all over the countryside for a number of years. I think there was a belief there. Doctrinally, there's this difficulty, though. Can a believer be possessed by Satan? We would say no, but there's this thing that's happened since this time. After Jesus left, and he talks talks about this in John 14, but after he left, he sent the Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, the Holy Spirit wasn't just with you, the Holy Spirit was in you. Now, if the Holy Spirit was in the disciples at this point, I don't think Satan could have entered into Judas. But the Holy Spirit wasn't in the disciples yet. He was just with them. And so Satan moves in to Judas, and we have now the work of Satan working with the fleshly desire of Judas to create this betrayal opportunity where Judas actually is going to go and speak to the murderously minded religious leaders and plan a way to hand Jesus over to them in secret. And it all had to be in secret because the religious leaders were afraid of the people. They were afraid if they did this in the eyes of everybody else, The people would rebel against them and maybe even fight for Jesus. But if they could do it in secret, in darkness, as it says in verse 6, apart from the crowd, then they can just get this whole thing over with. They can bring Jesus in, arrest him, have a trial, maybe even get to the point of execution. And then instead of a crowd being around to see this, the crowd will just read about it in the paper. Once thought Messiah, soon found to be blasphemer, put to death. 
That would have been a different approach. So this was their plan. This was their idea. Satan is using Judas. Judas's flesh is fighting against his spirit. Jesus knows all of this is going on, and he just wants to spend this last evening with his disciples, preparing them to hand off the kingdom work to them until he returns again. And so that's when he's going to have this moment that we call Passover, this Passover meal. We call it communion as we celebrate it today, but it all flowed through the Passover meal. The Passover was in the Old Testament. Uh, You'll see this in Exodus 11 and 12. The nation of Israel was in slavery and bondage in Egypt. God was going to bring them out. And so you remember the 10 plagues, all that kind of stuff. The last plague was that God was going to put to death all the firstborn children in the land of Egypt. But he had a way to save the firstborn children of Israel who were in Egypt. So what they did is they brought a lamb, they sacrificed that lamb, and they put its blood on the doorposts of their house. And then it says the angel of God passed over any house that had the blood of the lamb protecting them. You can already start to see the imagery here connecting the Passover to the things that Jesus would do for us, that he is, as John the Baptist called him, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it's his blood that causes God to pass over us so that we're not destroyed for our sins. So that's kind of the picture of Passover. That picture was to be celebrated every single year. They would have a feast. We call it Passover in the scriptures. Uh, It's generally at the time that we celebrate Easter. Uh, But this feast would happen every single year where the people would have this meal where they would remember the bitterness that they had in slavery, and they would remember that God saved them and brought them out of slavery, connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes in there that I'm going to have to just skip by because this is not a Passover sermon. But um, that being said, uh, you'll see in this next section where they're going to actually celebrate the meal. It says this in verse 7, then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Uh, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? He said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. They left and found everything just as he told them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So, in the middle of this betrayal and this plot to kill Jesus... 
Jesus now is going to set up the Passover meal, but it's really kind of secret squirrel stuff the way he does it. It's, it's this weird situation he calls Peter and John. He tells them, I need you to go prepare the Passover for us so that we can eat it. And so Peter and John are like, where are we going to prepare the Passover at? And Jesus says, here's what I need you to do. Go into the city. Look for a guy with a pitcher on his head. When you see that guy, he's the one. Tell him that he's going to prepare a place for the disciples and Jesus. You see how it's all very kind of secretive? Like, couldn't he have just said, we're going to do it at the falafel house down on 12th Street? It could have been that easy, but it was all very secretive. It's this, follow the guy with the picture on his head. It's, it sounds like a spy novel or something. But, but I think there's this intentional thing happening here. First of all, to avoid the crowds. If they're going to go into Jerusalem and take the Passover, it's not going to be good to have the crowds crowding in. <laughs> I think the other, though, is to avoid the betrayal, that it's not quite time yet for him to be arrested. He's been longing to have this final Passover meal, and then after the meal, there'll be an opportunity. You see, if he had just said plainly what time all of this is going to happen and where we're going to be at and all that kind of stuff, Judas would have known that there would be no crowd there. That could have been the moment when they would have arrested him. But Jesus has been longing to have this meal with them. So this is the way he does it, this kind of secretive meal where Peter and John sneak off and prepare everything. And then Jesus brings the disciples with him to this place that this undisclosed location, this place where they're going to take part in the Passover meal. So as they get together for the Passover meal, interesting as I kind of think through all of this, how God uses both his will... I'm going to accomplish this. We're going to have Jesus be crucified and sacrificed at this time, but also has to operate within the will of all the people of the world. His sovereignty, our free will, and he somehow is able to to do the calculus behind all of this to make it work just right so Jesus would actually be able to say all the things he said and live, but not be crucified until the Passover day as a fulfillment of this Old Testament picture in the feast. To me, again, we could spend hours on this. That's fascinating, but that's how I believe the will of God works. He has his will, his sovereignty. He's going to make these things happen, but he allows for us a measure of free will. And within that, he operates. It's way harder than like playing chess. Like chess is like, I'm going to move this piece from here to here. And I think that's how people think of of God working in the world. But a God that works in a world like that makes us not people. It just makes us fleshy robots. But that's not who we are. He's playing a level of chess that we can't understand. Imagine if all the pieces on a chessboard could move and you have nothing to do with it. That's the world that God is operating and bringing all of his prophetic word to existence in. He's operating in it. He can see it in advance. It's all perfectly played out. And yet, Judas still was operating in his own free will to betray Jesus. Do you see how it all kind of works together? Anyway, probably probably deeper than we needed to go right now, but... It's dinner time, right? So here they are. They're gathered together, going to take part in the Passover meal, this meal to celebrate being brought up out of Egypt, out of slavery and out of bondage. And Jesus tells them that he has been longing to do this. And there's really going to be five things that I want to pull out of this for us to see. 
Uh, The first is this, as Jesus has been longing to have this meal with them, what he wants them to see in verse 16, and then again in verse 18, that this is the last time he will have this Passover meal with them until he has it with them in the kingdom. There's going to be this drastic change, but this will be the last time he has it with them. For him, it's this bittersweet moment. He knows that there's going to be this distance of time between him and them. He recognizes this, and they still don't fully grasp it. That's this thing that keeps happening. He keeps telling them he's going to die, and they're like, whatever. Anyway, (laughs) they're just not grasping that. They can't comprehend it for some reason. But this will be celebrated again in God's kingdom. There in verse 16, he will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In verse 18, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. It's just not going to happen again until the kingdom. Now we have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament. The disciples didn't have that. They didn't really fully understood what he was talking about. But we can understand it because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 we can see this moment in time where it declares, behold, the kingdom of God is now. And then in verse 19, where it says, prepare to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when we take part in communion, we understand that we're doing this separated from Jesus Christ temporarily, but we're looking forward to a time when we will eat with him in his kingdom. A thing I've longed for, by the way. Following Jesus the way we do without ever actually seeing his face or hearing his voice. Man, that's hard. But knowing that there's going to be a day, we're going to see him face to face. Man, I hope we long for that day. I hope we desire that day. As we've waited and waited and someday as we every Sunday we eat this meal but someday we're going to eat with him in his kingdom now the second thing I'd like you to see is this in verse 19 uh, when Jesus takes the bread he breaks it he gives thanks for it he says this this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me so he's taking the Passover meal that was designed to remember leaving Egypt, he's now repurposing it as a remembrance of him, of his body and his blood. Now, throughout church history, different church groups have understood this differently, Um, but there's the three typical views, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and then what we fit into is known as either symbolic or memorial view of this communion meal. Transubstantiation, I call it the Catholic view because it's just easier than remembering transubstantiation. The Catholic view is that that bread and that juice miraculously turn into the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. That you are taking him into you. That's their view on it. Because of that, it's led them to have a very high view of communion. Literally to them, it's even connected to your salvation. That it's as you take part in the body of Christ that you are being saved. And they even to the point of saying, at the end of it, you can't throw the scraps away because you can't throw the body of Jesus in the garbage. 
And so they will eat the leftover bread. And you can't pour his blood out down the sink. And no, the priest will have to drink that afterwards and hope there's not too much leftover because that could be a whole different problem. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church, you know, we bought that land out at Harriman, has the old Greek Orthodox Church on it. They have a sink for communion. The pipe doesn't go into any type of system. It would just go out the wall onto the ground so that the blood of Jesus would be poured out as a drink offering. Because to them, it's, it's sacred. It, it's really the body and blood of Jesus. The consubstantiation view, I call that the Lutheran view. Uh, this is a slightly different view. That What Luther would say is, well, it's not physically the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, it, it tastes like a cracker. It tastes like wine or juice. Like it, it doesn't physically become those things. But it spiritually has the real presence of Jesus Christ. And he describes it with the illustration of fire. Fire is in of itself not the same thing as heat. But if you touch fire, you feel heat. <laughs> and in the same way, this isn't physically the body of Jesus, but he's still pretty spiritually present in the blood and in the bread. What we have is what's called the symbolic or memorial view, and, and we just take it from this picture here. Do this in remembrance of me. For us, it's just a visual aid for us to remember Jesus Christ, to remember him. That's what's important for us. So when we take part in communion, that piece of bread is to help us remember the body of Jesus Christ that hung on the cross. And when we drink from that juice, it's to remember that it was his blood that was poured out. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an aid, a visual aid for us to remember these things. The next thing I want you to see from this, he tells us is his blood in verse 20. He says, my blood is the blood of the new covenant. This is a new covenant in my blood. In the Old Testament, in order to make a covenant with somebody, which is like a contract, an agreement, a covenant was made in blood. And the way they would do it is the two people in agreement with the covenant would sacrifice an animal, slice it in half, set it apart, and then the two people would walk between the sacrifice together. They would go through the sacrifice together as a symbol that this is so important that it's death. It's a death that brings about this contract. This is how seriously we take the terms of this contract. In the same sense, Jesus is saying, I'm the sacrifice that seals the deal of the new covenant that was promised by God in the book of Jeremiah. That the law of God would not be just written with words, but it would be written on the heart of the people. It's this new contract or agreement that we have with God that the sins that we've sinned will be put to death with Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he lived will be applied to our life so God no longer sees our sins as a believer in Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of his own son applied to us. It's as if we lived a perfect life even though we know we didn't. But from God's perspective, that's how he sees us now because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Fourth thing I want you to grasp out of this, to recognize the stress that this must have put on Jesus, knowing that it's a picture of his death. And then there in verse 22, uh, 21 and 22, pointing out that the person who's betraying him is taking part in the meal with them. 
You see, what Jesus did for us was not some easy task. The anxiousness and the anxiety has been building within him for months and years leading up to this moment. A fifth thing, I'll just give it to you from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Just a fifth thing that I want you to remember this. In verse 16 and 17, it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What I want you to get through that is all those Old Testament feasts and festivals, including the Passover, each one of them was a shadow or a foreshadowing of Jesus. And so I can look over here and see because of, whoa, I'm everywhere. There's a lot of lights on me. Okay. There's shadows all around me. (laughs) But that's not really me. I'm the substance. That's the shadow. What, what, What Paul tells us is that Passover feast, it was just a shadow of Jesus Christ. He's the substance. And so when they were celebrating this Passover over and over, remembering that God had brought him out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, it takes on greater meaning when Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who takes away. When Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who is sacrificed so that God would pass over and not destroy them. The substance of that feast was actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you can see that in, in all those Old Testament feasts. Unleavened bread uh, was talking about his sinlessness. Of course, the Passover we just talked about. Uh, you could look at uh, the, the Feast of Weeks, which is going to happen uh, after this, uh, 50 days after this, the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the church comes. You could talk about first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. Each of these, of course, we look forward to the, to the next set of feasts, in particular the Feast of Trumpets, because we believe that's somehow connected to Christ's return and bringing us to be with him. And so these connections are happening. It's so powerful that Jesus is actually being sacrificed during the Passover so that they, they can see that all that was before was just a picture that became real in Jesus Christ, that there would be this sacrifice for our sins. Anyway, here we have the betrayer at the table. Uh, The guys begin to argue about themselves, about which one of them might betray Jesus, but that's going to turn into an argument about which one of them is the greatest, which is just so them. And so us. I can envision how it's going to go, by the way. Who do you think it is? Which is cool in and of itself, because Judas was not known as the betrayer at this point. Nobody thought it was going to be him, necessarily. Isn't that crazy to you? That's a little scary, right? But here's the other thing about that. They're like, who do you think it's going to be? And I always envision it's Peter because it's always Peter. And Peter's like, well, you know it's not me because I'm the greatest. (laughs) The others are like, what do you mean you're the greatest? I'm the greatest. And they start arguing now about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus has just told them that he's going to die. He's going to be betrayed by one of them. And they're trying to figure out who's got the highest ranking in the room. See, Jesus is bringing them together for this one last time to give them some final instructions before he dies. And this is the way the conversation goes. Well, verse 24 uh, through... Um, 38 here. It's going to be just a number of quick teachings from Jesus. Let me go through them quickly. 
Uh, There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings and the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, it's like he has to get his attention. (laughs) He wasn't really paying attention. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, The rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. Whoever has has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to, me, he, uh, uh, refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. So here we have now this set of teachings. The first in response to them about arguing who's the greatest. Oddly enough, you'll see this in Luke chapter 9. You'll see it in Matthew. You'll see it in Mark. Every time Jesus told them he was about to die, they start to argue about who's the greatest. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I guess what they're really saying is once the boss is gone, who gets his spot? That's what they're arguing about. Who's going to be in charge once Jesus is gone? I guess. That's the argument. Jesus reminds them here what he's told them multiple times over. We're not like the rest of the world. The greatest is the servant. The one who's the servant of all, that's the greatest. It was an example for them, an example for us. By the way, if you want to get deeper into this final teaching of Jesus, John 13 through 17 covers this same meal, but in so much more detail. We're just hitting these teachings quickly, but so many more things in there. Uh, In John, you'll recognize that Jesus, after he taught them about being the greatest disrobed and began to wash their feet. He took that lowest possible place. He, the Messiah, became the servant of all. And this is where the wives tap their husband on the shoulder. See, told you I'm greater than you. (laughs) This is who we should be as believers. We should be the servants of all. That should be default for us. That's the example Jesus left for us. Well, the next thing he tells them in verse 28 through 30, remember earlier he said, I won't eat this again until we enter into the kingdom. He wants them to know that when they get to the kingdom, there's a place for them, that they'll sit with him at his table, that they'll rule the tribes of Israel on thrones. It's a great encouragement for them. And I I don't understand the physics of heaven, 
So I don't know if it's just like one table and only the 12 are there, but at least in my vision of heaven, regardless of what table at, I'm going to be there as well. That's the part that to me is exciting about this. Again, one day I will be with him face to face. One day I'll be eating communion with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it'll be a powerful moment where I'll be in his presence. And I'll know that this is what every meal is going to be like for all eternity. So much to look forward to in that. The next thing is to remind Peter that he was going to betray Jesus. Look at this in verse 31. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I think it's important for us to remember, first of all, Satan's got his fingers all over this, right? But second of all, Satan actually has to get permission from God in order to sift us like wheat. You see another example of that in the, in the book of Job, where Satan approaches God and asks about Job, about tormenting Job. So on one hand, we recognize that Satan is less authoritative than God. The other thing is to understand when we're being sifted by Satan, that God himself gave permission you mean there's things I can learn in the hard stuff too? Yeah. And we worship him by being faithful in the sifting. It's all important for us to see how it all works together. I think that's powerful for us when we're struggling because we're going to struggle, guys. There's going to be struggles in this life. There's going to be struggles in this world to remember that God is still king over all of it. And Satan can do nothing to us that God did not permit. And he can do nothing to us to remove from us the promised salvation that we have ahead of us. All he can do to us is temporary. It's affliction to be sure, but it's temporary. I also like this. Jesus tells Simon, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again... Strengthen your brothers. There's no question you're going to fail, Peter, just so you know. There's no question. My prayer is that you don't fail to give up on your faith, but when you come back from this fall, you serve others. You serve your brothers and your sisters. You strengthen them. Peter, of course, says, no way, I'd go to prison. Jesus says, watch it. One, two, three strikes, you're out. Rooster crows, we'll talk about it later. It's just going to happen. It doesn't matter how bold he was in the moment. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes as a Christian, I try to make these kind of bold claims about what I'm going to do. <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, the next thing that Jesus does is he says, remember that time where I sent you all out two by two? Told you, you don't need to take an extra coat or extra shoes or any money. The people are going to take care of you because they were popular back then. Not from this point forward. This will begin a great persecution of Christians. He's telling them this is going to be different. You're going to have to find a way to provide for yourself and to protect yourself. Take a money belt, take a coat, take a bag, take a sword. It was already prophesied, Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, and that's how they're all going to be seen. 
From this point forward, the Jews are going to see the Christians as transgressors of God's law. It's going to be difficult for them going forward. Of course, right away, somebody says, look, here's two swords. Jesus says, all right, that's enough, at least for tonight. (laughs) Really, he only needs one sword tonight. Verse 39, now we see this crazy thing that happens. Jesus just said everything that was written must be fulfilled, but now he's going to be begin to pray, and he's going to say to God, really though, if there's any other way, let's go that way. (laughs) Everything must be fulfilled, but please don't let it be fulfilled. (laughs) This is the human nature of Jesus. Look at this. It's not sin. It's human though. Look at this in verse 39. He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So they've left Jerusalem now. They crossed the Kidron Valley. They've worked their way up to the Mount of Olives, to this Garden of Gethsemane that's on that mount. Uh, It's it's not really that far away, but it's a place where they're now alone and the crowds aren't. And Judas knew that this is something that Jesus would do. Every night he would leave the city and he would go to the Mount of Olives. So he has now set the trap for Jesus. When Jesus gets to that garden, he begins to pray, but his prayer is interesting. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is one of those powerful things in prayer. We don't have to sanitize our feelings in prayer. We get to, in prayer, tell God everything that's on our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. That we can beg Him to change His mind. It's okay to lament and to mourn and to ache and to fervently pray until you begin to sweat, to be so agonized by your circumstances, to cry out to Him with all that you have. But in that, we also pray, as Jesus here did twice, if you are willing, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, ultimately, as much as He cried out to God, He also was surrendered to God. And that's how all of our prayers should go. Cry out to Him with all that you have. Ask Him to change all of it if you want to. But then be surrendered to His choice. Because if it's His will, by His will He could change circumstances, or by His will He could say no. We surrender ourselves to His will. But yes, cry out to Him with all that you have when you're miserable and you're struggling. Of course, the disciples kept falling asleep. It tells us they fell asleep from sorrow, uh, which is, uh, you know, I've actually fallen asleep from sorrow before. I get it. <laughs> You've been so, so overwhelmed by your circumstances, and you just, you just can't take it. Uh, they fall asleep, it seems, through sorrow. What they could have been doing was praying that they wouldn't be tempted, <laughs> and temptation will come. Verse 47 
While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, uh, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. It's interesting who comes out to arrest Jesus. Of course, there's Judas there who betrays him with a kiss. That was the sign he gave him. The man I kiss, that will be Jesus and you can arrest him. Not that they didn't know who Jesus was, right? (laughs) But it is dark. Maybe it was just a way of making it clear. But it's the chief priests sneaking around in the middle of night. It's the elders, the political leaders of the nation of Israel, sneaking around in the middle of night to arrest Jesus and to put him to death. And Jesus just points out, I was hanging out at your house every single day. You never arrested me there. What you're doing in darkness is obviously of darkness. Well, after his arrest, we're going to see the denials of Peter in verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away, brought him to the house of the high priest. Peter was following at a distance after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, had had, uh, sat down together. Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A A little later, Another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another began to insist saying, certainly this man was also with him for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So here's the three denials of Jesus, or of of Peter denying Jesus three times, exactly as Jesus told him it was going to happen. And in that moment when the rooster crows, Jesus hears the rooster and he looks at Peter. And Peter is brokenhearted by this. Now, let's not look too harshly on Peter here. Peter will return. He will feed the sheep of God. He will become an apostle again. And he will someday lay down his life for Jesus. He'll be martyred for his faith. But in this moment, he was brokenhearted because he realized he's just denied his Savior. So powerful for me, though, that this one who's denied Jesus will be restored by Jesus as well. And then it ends with this very shortened version of one of the trials of Jesus. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming, which is heartbreaking to know that someday these guys who are saying these things to Jesus are going to stand before him in judgment. 
And I just envision him saying, you know, you asked me a question one time. You hit me, you hit me, and you blasphemed. Brokenhearted, just of the, the way that will look. Verse 66, when it was day, the council of elders and the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you won't answer. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God, uh, the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Well, finally and ultimately, he gets this trial uh, before the Sanhedrin. Again, this is the leader of the people, the people who snuck around in the middle of the night and the people who plotted against Jesus to murder him. They're going to do this trial. They're going to ask him if he's the Christ. He says, what difference does it make? You're not going to believe anything I say. They're going to ask him, Ultimately, are you the son of God? Because he's going to quote Psalm 110 at them in verse 69. From now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Psalm 110 verse 1. Powerful choice of psalm here. I think Jesus is actually goading them in this moment. You you may recall as Jesus entered in Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the people in the crowd were singing. They were singing Psalm 110. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus reminds these religious leaders of that moment when the people were crying out that he was the one who was coming in the name of the Lord. He brings it back to their memory. And so that's why they ask him this question, are you the son of God? And he says, yes, I am. And with that, they have enough evidence to convict him, although it's not new information. This has been all throughout his ministry. Even at his baptism, God himself said, Behold, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus over and over and over made the claim to be the son of God. And here in this statement, at least as it reads in the English, and I'm not uh, good enough at the Hebrew and Greek stuff to know if this really works out. uh, When Jesus says, Yes, I am, I think there's a profound statement in that. Remember when Moses asked God, Who should I tell the people you are? God said, Tell them, I am. And now Jesus says to the council, yes, I am. It just seems to me like it just might be one more declaration of who Jesus was. So all of this all together is what surrounds this meal that we have shortened down to call communion in this very simplified way. So Doug's going to come up here and we're going to take part in communion like we do any other Sunday. It's exactly the same as any other Sunday, just at the end now with us able to feel the weight of it for Jesus and see what all goes into it prophetically in hopes that we remember him better today and maybe on future Sundays as we take part in communion. Father, we do want to remember your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we would ask today that you would be honored as we remember him in the eating of the bread and the drinking of of the, of the juice. Father, would you help this have newer and richer meaning to us going forward? That it not just become some habit for us, but that it would continue to have a real meaning to us. That we would really be remembering not just a couple of little details about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, 
but we would realize the weight of it for Jesus, the prophetic purpose of it from you, the pain of it, all being done because you love us. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.